This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine, and it's a delight to welcome you here today. Now, on this program, as you may know, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. And then we ask the poet to read one of, in this case, her own poems that has been published in the magazine. And my guest today is Sophie Cabot-Black, Welcome. Thank you. Sophie Cabot Black's collection, The Misunderstanding of Nature, was awarded the Poetry Society of America's Norma Farber First Book Award. Now, the poem you've chosen to read today, Sophie Cabot Black, is by Donald Hall, the great Donald Hall. It's called The Ship Pounding. Would you mind telling us a little bit about what drew you towards this poem? Well, it was the first poem I read in that magazine issue, and I'll, I won't do the spoiler alert yet. And it was a devastating poem. I think it was beautifully, beautifully written. It was unusual, I thought, for Donald Hall to be so blunt and specific about Jane's situation. And after I finished reading it, I turned a few more pages and realized that Jane's poem was also in there, The Sick Wife. They appeared in the same issue. So this was Donald Hall's wife, Jane Kenyon. Kenyon. And the two poems appeared, as you say, in the same issue of the magazine, April 22nd, 1996. One of the great capacities uh, that poetry has is to deal with the events in our lives that are troubling, that are difficult to make sense of, illness being one of them. So you described it as being blunt or direct in a way that you hadn't quite expected? It was direct. At this point, I knew that Donald Hall himself had been ill. And to have the positions turned with his wonderful wife, the poet Jane Kenyon, was something already that was quite devastating to hear. But to see him capture that in this poem, I think for myself as a poet, I had never really understood how you could deal with such issues directly and felt that they could become sentimental and maudlin. I think he handled it beautifully in this and the way he was able to bring in the 
hospital and the ship and the way that everything was included in it was something that was unusual for him. He, he was stretching further out in terms of his metaphors than I had seen before in his work. You know, we should listen to the poem The Ship Pounding by Donald Hall, read here by Sophie Cabot Black. The Ship Pounding Each morning I made my way among gangways, elevators, and nurses' pods to Jane's room to interrogate the grave helpers who tended her through the night while the ship's massive engines kept its propellers turning. Week after week I sat by her bed with black coffee and the globe. The passengers on this voyage wore masks or cannulae or dangled devices that dripped chemicals into their wrists. I believed that the ship traveled to a harbor of breakfast, work, and love. I wrote, When the infusions are infused entirely, bone marrow restored and lymphoblasts remitted, I will take my wife, bald as Michael Jordan, back to our dog and day. Today, months later at home, these words turned up on my desk as I listened in case Jane called for help or spoke in delirium, ready to make the agitated drive to emergency again for readmission to the huge vessel that heaves water month after month without leaving port, without moving a knot, without arrival or destination, its great engines pounding. There's a troublingly static aspect to the poem, isn't there? I mean, the description of the ship that does not move a knot, has no arrival or destination. Of course, we're looking at it metaphorically. I think one of the things that a poet can do is try and make sense of a situation. And I've always imagined in their particular place where their relationship switched, where one became ill and the other one became the one who was taking care of the ill one, that this became a very static place for them. Donald had been ill and Jane had been taking care of him. And when it switched, I think it must have been one of the most difficult and devastating hinges of their relationship. So the boat itself, from my perspective, was something that was a very apt metaphor because there was many people trying to help, many trying to take care and to ascertain and to diagnose and to cure But really, ultimately, they were the only ones together at the bottom of it, trying to pull this together. A couple of things strike me as as I listen to the poem, and the first of them has to do with the fact that I'm listening to it. When I hear the line with black coffee and the globe, it's not entirely clear, uh, I suppose, at first hearing that the globe, of course, is the Boston Globe, I assume, rather than Shakespeare's Globe or the uh, some representation of the planet. But it's as if there's a momentary hesitation over it while we sort of figure out, well, actually, it's neither of those. It's got to be the Boston Globe. And I suppose in some sense that happens to us again and again as we're reading a poem either on the page or listening to it indeed. I think that's what the poet is able to do that many artists aren't able to get to, which is this business of being able to ride three or four rails at the same time. You've got the globe. Of course, when you see it, you think of the Boston Globe, you think of New England, but you, of course, think of the universe of what you're trying to accomplish inside of where you're trying to accomplish the different 
universes inside of themselves. And then, of course, the globe itself, which is the place that you're trying to hold together where you and your loved one, beloved, live. Now, what about Michael Jordan? I suppose there is a whole... Is it possible that there is a generation now about who has not... that has not the faintest idea of who Michael Jordan might have been? Well, that is a good possibility, but I think ultimately it's a wonderful name that we can pretty much put in whatever we want to put in, even as decades go by and we forget the real who the real Michael Jordan was. It occurs to me that there's that other resonance, though, of the Jordan as the river, which is associated with baptism. and uh... Absolutely, absolutely, and Michael, Archangel. Do you think it's too much to bring that reading to bear on this poem? And I mean, isn't many readers will be thinking, what on earth are they talking about? Or many listeners will be thinking, what on earth are they talking about? It's Michael Jordan. It's as simple as that. I actually don't think we need to go that far when we ask questions of poetry. I think in general, the the best thing that a person can do when they're listening, when they're reading poetry is to let it wash into them. And what happens is there will be some undertones and some chords that will be struck that you don't even realize are happening in your own psyche because those are things that are being played, if you will, chords that are being played. And I think they they feed into what you have, what you experience when you are reading this and what you have to say about the poem after you've read it. But I don't think, if you need to go into it deeply, I think that's, it's a waste of time. I think it's a wonderful thing to have things undiscovered happen. So that was The Ship Pounding by Donald Hall, published in the April 22nd, 1996 issue of the magazine. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from. Whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. And now in the June 19, 1996 issue... The New Yorker was very pleased to publish your own poem, Sophie Cabot Black, a poem called Chemotherapy. And uh, you're going to read that for us now. But I'd like to ask you, as you were thinking of what you might read on this occasion, what, what led you to chemotherapy? Had it to do, perhaps, with uh, the Donald Hall poem? Yes, in 2005, my friend Jason Schinder, the poet, began to die of leukemia. And I found myself responding to his illness and wanting to write to his illness, actually wanting to respond to his poems about his illness also. So this is one of the first that I began. It came out of a summer when I had to take my children away into a wildfire situation after it had had devastated a piece of land. We had to go tour it. He was back in, in New York having his chemotherapy treatments, and I couldn't be with him. So this is what began a long series of poems to him and about him and and in response to some of his poems back to me. It's a poem that I didn't realize had a connection with the ship pounding until later when I found myself writing a very similar poem in response to Donald Hall's poem. And I found that even though I know that we 
were all a tribe that was trying to help Jason get better. We were not able to reach him the way that Donald and Jane were able to reach each other, and I found that even frustrating. Poets tend to need each other. We are in tribes of both loneliness and also trying to understand what we do. You know, I'm struck by your use of the word tribe there. You know, so many people tend to think, and indeed many poets think of themselves, as being isolated individuals who are somehow um, stuck in a room somewhere wrestling with the language. And I think what you're proposing about the interconnectedness of poetry and poets is something that may come as a bit of a surprise, actually, to to some listeners. Yes, I think there's a dance that a poet especially needs to make between, in a sense, ambition and self-preservation. The ambition part is very difficult because it's a world that doesn't always welcome poets. The world says they love poetry, but they don't really read as much as they, we want them to. At the same time, the only way that we can really do our work is in isolation, and we are human, so humans need each other. So it's a very difficult sort of strange place to be where we're always looking for both companionship in what we do, but at the same time, enough time to be away to do our work and to do our work well. So there's a wonderful moment of devastation, go an image of devastation that's going in two directions, at which point we should really hear chemotherapy uh, by Sophie Cabot-Black, read by Sophie Cabot-Black. Chemotherapy. My friend is going through the fire on his knees, his hands crossing the entire field of it. Once in a while he calls out, bewildered, the other side unclear, wanting to just lie down and wait among the scattered stones. Unimaginable heat, he pants, lost in the light of what keeps happening. Think water, think water, and he manages to make out one nurse up against the bright, and it takes everything to tell her what he needs, as if he had come upon the one tree still standing and understood she promises nothing, who in her uniform was all that was ever asked for and who could hold him as he has never been held. What an extraordinary image there at the end. I mean, an image of uh, going in, in a way towards the erotic and yet, of course, completely bound up with notions of mortality, perhaps. The two things are always connected. Tell me this. When you were visited by that image as you came out of the poem, did you think to yourself, wow, that's, that's a pretty amazing image? I actually struggled with those lines for various reasons, not for poetic reasons, but for veracity. Mm-hmm. Who was I in the middle of all this? And who is his tribe in the middle of all this? He struggled with the idea that we had to be taking care of him during his illness. At the same time, he wanted to shield us from our worry and from our concern for him. He wanted us to act as if he was never dying. I think that's what, from my difficulty and struggle at the end of this poem, to make the poem correct, 
is why I hid behind two or three of those little places these, these issues, never naming who the nurse is, never saying if it's the eye. And I think the very last line, could hold him as he has never been held, has two or three meanings to it. Yes, and talk again, us through that, would you? Talk us through that. Well, he was a young man, and he was going to be leaving the planet after maybe five decades of love and affection and people caring for him and people loving him and being in love with him. But at the same time, he had never built a family. He'd never had a long, steady girlfriend. So in that way, he was always feeling that he had a long list of things to do before he died. And I think this was really important to him to both acknowledge but at the same time be aware that he had to let go. And I think that's what this is trying to address is that there's, in a way, that that one thing that you think you have left off of the list that you have to strive for, it's the one thing that keeps you alive. But at the same time, it may be the one thing that can't save you and you may not be able to achieve at the end of your days. Tell me a little bit about your sense of the responsibility that a poet might have when he or she is dealing with real people, quote-unquote, historical characters, people with uh, feelings, emotions, uh, and uh, people who, who might be hurt or whose loved ones might be hurt. Would you say a word or two about the sense of responsibility that one might have as a poet? We owe our art the truth, but at the same time we want to be able to have a moral, a good moral life where we haven't taken somebody down. And in a funny way, I, I would imagine some might argue that that's what poets get to do is they get to code their language. They get to get to code their experience. And I wouldn't agree with that. I think the only way that it would resonate is if it was truthful. So perhaps that's what poetry can do is it can hold both the truth and the untruth of the truth I just happened to notice a quotation from the great painter Georges Braque. It's something along the lines of, as an artist uh, gets older, quote-unquote, the life and the art become indistinguishable, are one. Is that a sense that you have at all? I remember a mentor, Stanley Kunitz, who wrote until he was 100, once said that you need to make the character that you have to write from and I'm deeply paraphrasing it, but he basically said you need to shape a life from which to write from. Mm -hmm. And that made no sense to me because I think from my perspective, very early, I, there was no choice but to write. It was what I was going to do, not so much to be a writer, but to write. And it was out of my control. But in time, I understood it better to mean that Ultimately, you do need to shape your attention and you need to pay attention in a way that might be different than most others. And that kind of attention requires some maintenance. It requires some nurturing maintenance and it requires some boundaries. So you need to understand what that does to the rest of your life. It may You may pay in your personal life. You may pay in your achievements otherwise, the roof, how you keep the roof over your head, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that ultimately, as you get older, you get better at it. And so they sort of become more entwined. 
Sophie Cabot Black, thank you so much for being with us today uh, and for talking about those poems. The Ship Pounding by Donald Hall, of course, and Chemotherapy by yourself, Sophie Cabot Black, both may be found on newyorker.com. Donald Hall's latest book of poems is White Apples and the Taste of Stone, Poems 1946-2006. to And then Sophie Cabot Black's most recent collection is The Exchange. I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of The New Yorker. Until next time, thank you very much. You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in newyorker.com and on the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Ross from Colburny Records. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.